0: As we come now to consider the perfection and the extent of the atonement, we conclude the first portion of this study, which deals with the accomplishment of redemption. So for a number of weeks now, we've been going through redemption, accomplished, and applied. uh, The subject, not the book necessarily, though we've been leaning heavily upon the book written by John Murray that bears that same title. And we've looked at various aspects of the atonement and how the work of redemption was designed by God and carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is chiefly what we mean when we speak of the accomplishment of redemption. And really, the study of the accomplishment of redemption is the study of the atonement. And so a lot of our lessons have had to do with the atonement. And only after this portion of the study can we really begin to proceed to the application of redemption. Most of the time when people talk about the plan of salvation or when they talk about redemption, they immediately start to think about those things which happen in and to the one being redeemed. But we understand that the plan of salvation does not begin with you or me. It begins really before the foundation of the world. And if we don't understand what God has already done, we have no basis to understand what He is doing in us. Well, before we dive into the perfection and the extent of the atonement, let's just consider what we've seen thus far. And I would encourage you, uh, especially since we haven't done these studies every week, we usually take a break or two in between. I'd encourage you to just review our sermon audio if you if you so would like to do that. Uh, and all of these sessions are on our sermon audio, but. We first looked at the necessity of the atonement, and we saw that the atonement has a consequent, absolute necessity. Somebody want to take a crack at that? Consequent, absolute necessity? What do we mean when we say the atonement... We talk about the consequent, absolute necessity of the atonement. We mean what? Okay, let me ask it this way. Was the atonement, was the death of Christ... Was that one of the many options that God could have chosen and He surveyed those options and He picked that one? Or is it true that the atonement of Christ, His death on Calvary's cross, is the only way, it's not one of many ways, but it's the only way that He could have accomplished His decree to save sinners? Okay, so that's that's what we mean when we talk about the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. In accordance with God's free and sovereign decree to save sinners by His grace... The atonement must needs be made, and it must needs be made in the way that it was made in the person and work of Christ. Well, then we looked at the nature of the atonement, and we sought to answer the question, what specifically did God do for sinners through the atonement? And you say, well, He saved them. And of course that's true, but how? How did the death of Jesus on the cross save sinners And so we saw that the atonement as a sacrifice removed our sin. The atonement as a propitiation removed the wrath of God. And the atonement as reconciliation removed the alienation between God and us. And all that we see is accomplished in the work of Christ upon the cross. We also had a... Uh, excursion into some of the universal terms that are used in the Bible. Words like world and all. And that's not taken from a chapter of Murray's book necessarily, but it really does help us set the stage for some of these subjects. And uh, I, I won't go into all of that, but I trust that you your minds are being refreshed when you think about the mentioning of some of those universal terms and how uh, world does not always just mean world, and all does not always just mean all, but we have to Determine and define those terms based upon how they're used in their own individual contexts. So keep these things fresh in your mind as we now study uh, the perfection and extent of the atonement. We've examined the why of redemption, which is its necessity. We've examined the what of redemption, which is its nature. And tonight what we're going to look at is the for whom of redemption. The for whom of redemption. On whose behalf did Christ make the atonement? For whom was redemption accomplished? And to whom will redemption be applied? This is really a question of most practical importance as it does little good to study the atonement as an abstract theological concept apart from its recipients. Think about that. I mean, if you, if you study the atonement as some... A theological lesson or truth or dictate off in the wild blue yonder without any practical implications upon those for whom it was made, it really does you little good. On the other hand, if you properly understand what the atonement is and why it was made, then you will naturally arrive at the correct understanding of the atonement's intent and scope. I'll say that again. If you understand what the atonement is, you'll understand. Whom it was for, if you really grasp what it is. Well, before we can directly address the question of for whom was the atonement made, we need to first consider the perfection of the atonement. And uh, Murray deals with the uh, perfection and extent of the atonement in two separate chapters, but uh, these concepts are so intimately related that it's very appropriate for us to look at them together and... One is really foundational to the other, so we'll consider them together. I'm going to try to to move quickly through the perfection so that we have more time to look at the extent, Uh, but I'll take questions at the end, and if there's anything you need clarified, we'll, we'll discuss that. So the perfection of the atonement. What do we mean when we talk about the word perfection? Well, don't think of perfection in the exact same sense that you think of perfection the way it's used in our modern vernacular today, as if... Which, which there's truth to that, of course. But when you hear the word perfection, you should think of the word complete or final or sufficient. Um, that's the idea behind perfect. And really, we can see the perfection of the atonement very clearly when we contrast it with the Roman Catholic view of the atonement. Uh, according to Rome, the work of Christ contributes a great deal to our satisfaction, to the satisfaction of our sin and our guilt, but man must also make a vital contribution to fully meet his needs as a sinner. Rome has this view that your baptism washes away past sins and washes away original sin, but then it's up to you to uh, keep the sacraments and, and uh, be a quote-unquote good Christian, do your part to secure ultimate atonement for your sin. Rome views Christ's satisfaction and human satisfaction working together in the atonement. But orthodox, biblical Christianity, however, contends that the satisfaction of Christ is the only satisfaction for sin, and to suggest anything else is to rob the Redeemer of His glory. Amen. That's right. Christ's satisfaction is the only satisfaction. Okay. So when we talk about the perfection of the atonement, we're talking about the perfection of Christ's person and work. And we're referring to the exhaustive completeness of redemption as a thing fully accomplished by Christ alone. That's what we mean when we talk about the perfection of the atonement. Well, Murray cites four proofs for the perfection of the atonement. Four facets, you could you could say. Just different ways of looking at the perfection of the atonement. And I'll write them on the board. The first is... It's historic objectivity. Historic objectivity. Uh, Historic objectivity. And what this means is that the atonement is an objective historical fact. You can look at a timeline, and you can go back on the timeline, and you can point to a place on the timeline when the atonement was accomplished. When, when would you point to? 33 AD. Yeah, somewhere around circa 33 AD, right? When Jesus Christ went to the cross. It is something that was accomplished in the fullness of time when our Redeemer took on flesh and entered into His saving work, right? And died for us. And uh, the Bible in Galatians chapter 4, and there will be plenty of places I'll ask you to turn to, Um, But Galatians chapter 4, in verses 4 and 5, the Bible says this, it says that, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice the phrase there, when the fullness of time had come. Uh, when, When the appointed time for the atonement to be made had come, God sent forth His Son into the world. The atonement is historically located and it's objective in its respect to us. What does that mean? That means that the atonement was accomplished independently from us. We were not there. We were not contributing to it. We can look back and see it being accomplished having nothing really to do with us in that sense, in the sense of our contribution. Right. And as we will soon see, the application of redemption, the effects of the atonement, presuppose the accomplishment of the atonement. Mm. Do you realize you would have no gospel to preach to anyone if you did not believe in a historically objective atonement? Right. What, what do we preach when we share the gospel? We go to sinners and we say, a Savior has died. Yeah. And so we're pointing to a historical reality. Well, secondly, we look at the atonement's finality. And and these are very closely related. In fact, as I was uh, reading Murray, sometimes I struggle to really differentiate them. But upon a a second read-through, I understand what he means by these different facets. Uh, Murray, by the way, some of you know this, is one of the brightest theologians uh, of the 20th century in America, for sure. Uh, So reading him, sometimes you have to slow down and you have to think a little bit. But when he speaks of the finality of the atonement, what, what he's talking about is that the atonement is a finished work. Not only is it historically objective, but it's finished. The New Testament stresses what Murray refers to as the once for allness of the atonement. The once for allness of the atonement. And I like that phrase. Uh, we see in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. I like that phrase because it's Bible. But it, the Bible says in Hebrews 9 and verse 12 not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So the atonement is not something that's in the process of taking place. It's not something that was started and now is awaiting its finish. It is complete. It's complete. John Murray says this, quote, the atonement is a completed work, never repeated and unrepeatable. Now when he says that, never repeated and unrepeatable, what, what, what is he opposing there? The Mass, the mass exactly. The Mass. What, what do they do, Roman Catholics, every, every time they institute the Mass, what are they doing? They're re-crucifying and re-offering, um, and re-offering... The Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say this, not in the notes, but you know, uh, some might wonder why are you always harping on Roman Catholic theology? Why are you always uh, harping on on Papist theology? Uh, there's not that many Papists around anymore. Uh, and you read you read Calvin, for instance, and it's all it's I mean it's the Papist this, the Papist that. Because in his day, that was public enemy number one. Well, let me say this, and I don't want to get off on a on a tangent here, but let me say this. If you trace back the modern heresies that we have today, you'll find their seedbed in Roman Catholic theology. Uh, So uh, I am not of the opinion that, oh, well, you know, that was the fight in the Reformers' day, uh, but today we we can focus on different things. In some ways, I think it's even more important that we do talk about Roman Catholic theology uh, because it's it's still here. It's just disguised in a different name. And we'll see that in, in, in short order when we get into the extent of the atonement. But what what you must understand from the finality of the atonement is that the blood has been shed, the sacrifice has been made, and God has accepted it. Okay, it's final. And then Murray talks about the uniqueness of the atonement. The uniqueness of the atonement. And really, you can equate this with the exclusivity of the one who made the atonement. But what he means is that the atonement is unique because Christ is uniquely the Redeemer. Jesus and Jesus alone has made an atonement for His people. No other thing and no one else can atone for sin. Amen. Jesus alone. John Murray, quote, The Scripture representation is that the Son of God incarnate and He alone, to the exclusion of the Father and Spirit in the divine realm, to the exclusion of angels and men in the created order, gave himself a sacrifice to redeem us to God by his blood. Wow, It's unique. It's unique. And then, lastly, the intrinsic efficacy. Intrinsic efficacy. And what he means here is that by virtue of what the atonement is, by by virtue of its essence and its nature... It is nothing less than a complete satisfaction of all God's just demands. Um, It wasn't here, and and, and when I say this, I think something might click in your mind, and you might think, you know, I've heard someone articulate the atonement that way. It wasn't that the atonement caused God to feel pity. It wasn't as if the Father was in heaven, and he saw, oh, Man, my poor son is dying on this cross. It's really moving me to be compassionate and loving and gracious. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't that the atonement caused God to feel pity as if he were moved by a love divorced from righteousness to lower the standards of his perfect justice. It was that the atonement was in itself so perfect, listen, that God could not but accept it. He could not but accept it as the full payment for the sins of Christ's people. Amen. It satisfied all of God's demands. In the atonement, Christ settled our sin debt and granted an acceptable righteousness. He met all of our needs in the atonement. There is nothing left to be done for the Father to receive us as saints. And even as Christians, even as Calvinists, we have to fight this, this inner desire to perform and to do something to make God accept us. It's just a natural tendency. That's why we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Mm -hmm. God is not waiting on me to do some good work to accept me. I am fully accepted because of what Christ has done, period. John Murray says, quote, The atonement is the provision of the Father's love and grace, but there is equal need for remembering that the work wrought by Christ was in itself intrinsically adequate to meet all the exigencies created by our sin and all the demands of God's holiness and justice. Christ discharged the debt of sin. He bore our sins and purged them. Listen at this. He did not make a token payment which God accepts in place of the whole. And now, one of my favorite lines of the whole book, Our debts are not canceled, they are liquidated. Our debts are not canceled, they are liquidated. Let me explain that in some modern vernacular. God didn't deal with our sins by sweeping them under the rug and turning a blind eye to them. God dealt with our sins by pulling them, putting them on center stage, putting the spotlight on them, hanging them on a cross, and crushing them. Amen. Yes. He didn't forget about them. Now, He does say, I will remember them no more, but He only says that because they've been paid for by Christ. So that's what we mean when we talk about the perfection of the atonement. Completed work. It is a a fully complete divine work that actually accomplishes something. And I'm going to repeat that phrase. Actually accomplishes something for its recipients. Now we can begin to look at the extent of the atonement. The extent of the atonement. Well, when we look at the extent of the atonement, we're really asking... The question, for whom did Christ make the atonement? Or, to put it more directly, for whom did Christ die? That's what the atonement is. And this question has prompted much controversy and even hostility among professing Christians. However, when you examine this subject logically and scripturally, the true biblical answer becomes quite apparent. The reason for the contention around the question of the atonement's extent is not the theological difficulty in determining it, but that the truth of the atonement's extent eviscerates human pride and crushes our carnal and emotional objections to the truth of God and His sovereignty. That's why people struggle with the extent of the atonement. Not because the Bible's unclear about it, but because it crushes our pride. And it crushes our emotional objections and, and uh, our carnal way of viewing things like fairness and love and equality. Uh, I had a pastor who would often repeat, God is not in fairness theology. He's not in fairness theology. And I like what R.C. Sproul said in a video that I was watching recently in Ligonier. Uh He was speaking about predestination and this was given decades ago, and he was talking about how Ligonier's ministry uh, for the first few decades was just focused on general truths of evangelical Christianity, the doctrine of scriptures, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, he said they, they had not really focused a concerted effort on the specifics of Reformed theology. And I, I think this was probably in the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. And he said, but but they had a board meeting, and he announced to the to the board, that he believes it's time that Ligonier enter into phase two. And this is what Sproul said. This was his words. He, he said, I told the board. He said, I'm through pussyfooting around. He said, if I meet somebody who says, well, I don't believe in predestination, he says, I'm going to grab him by the throat and say, why not? The Bible teaches it. <laughs> and uh, I don't suggest that you take our dear brother's advice to a literal, unless you just want to be a a modern day martyr Um, but I do agree with the sentiment in this that let me just encourage you with this, the doctrine of limited atonement is nothing to be ashamed of the Bible teaches it and uh, I'm thankful that God has brought me to a place and he's put me in a church where uh, I just want to stand on the Bible (laughs) and so uh, I hope that you don't feel within yourself even though you might be in a minority amongst professing Christians today. I hope you don't feel within yourself some need to hide the fact that you believe something that is so plainly biblical. So, let's look at the extent of the atonement. When we ask the question, what is the extent of the atonement, there's really two answers. Two answers. Okay, the first is the answer of universal or unlimited atonement. And this is the Arminian position. And then we have, on the other hand, the definite or the limited view. And this is the Calvinist, or Calvinistic, or Reformed, Augustinian position. Okay? So those are your two Answers to this question. Well, under the view of unlimited atonement, they, they will teach and profess that Christ died for all men without exception in the exact same way. Okay? And by his death, he made it possible. He made it possible. For all men to be saved if they make a personal decision to accept Him as their Savior. What I've just described to you is the view of the atonement that most professing Christians in America today hold. It wasn't always the case. As a matter of fact, not even a century ago it wasn't the case. But today it certainly is the case. But in order to affirm this, and this is what I want you to desperately understand, in order to affirm this, one must redefine what the atonement is. Sometimes you'll hear uh, people saying, we were talking about this at supper, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, everybody believes in a limited atonement, it's just uh, the difference is who limits it, us or God, and I used to kind of see that as well, but the, the truth is that the Arminian error is even worse than that. The, the Arminian error is that they actually redefine the atonement. Everything we've learned about the atonement thus far, about it being perfect and about it being complete and about it being an actual accomplishment, they don't believe that. They can't believe that. According to the Arminian, the atonement is not something that actually takes away sin, actually removes the wrath of God, and actually secures the reconciliation of God to His people. It is merely something that makes redemption a possibility. Because if you affirm unlimited atonement and you believe that the atonement is an actual accomplishment, then you would of necessity be a universalist who believes that all men will ultimately be saved. It's your only option. Therefore, the only way to believe in an unlimited atonement and still be a Christian is through a blessed inconsistency that redefines the atonement and strips it of its efficacy. To consistently hold to an unlimited atonement is to believe the heresy of universalism. So, um, either, if you're going to hold to a universal or an unlimited atonement, either you're going to be a universalist or you're going to have to redefine what the atonement is. Well, on the other hand, you have the view of limited atonement. And that is the view that on the cross, Jesus actually accomplished in the atonement the full and final redemption of a specific group of people that will definitely be saved. Amen. Amen. And this is the only view that is consistent with the clear implications of what the atonement actually is. That's right. That's why we've spent four sessions now on just trying to figure out what the atonement is. Because if you get that down, this is not hard at all. If you really believe that the atonement is a literal accomplishment, a real sacrifice a true propitiation, a genuine reconciliation, a completed redemption, then you must ask the questions, on whose behalf did Christ offer Himself a sacrifice? On whose behalf did He propitiate the wrath of God? Whom did He reconcile to God? Whom did He redeem from the curse of the law and eternal condemnation? Did Christ die in the exact same way for Judas as He did for John, the beloved disciple? Did Christ die in the exact same way for Jacob as He did for Esau? Did Christ die in the exact same way for those who will spend an eternity in hell as He did for those who will spend an eternity in heaven? If you answer yes, that is to say that Christ's death on the cross did nothing to affect the salvation of even one sinner. He saved nobody on the cross. It is to say that the true power of salvation lies within the sinner's choice to accept or reject Him. And it is to ascribe the glory of salvation to man's decision and not God's grace. Well, let me segue with this Murray quote here. Listen to this. Quote, Did Christ come to make the salvation of all men possible? To remove obstacles that stood in the way of salvation and merely to make provision for salvation? Or did He come to save His people? Did He come to put all men in a savable state? Or did He come effectually and infallibly to redeem? The doctrine of the atonement must be radically revised if as atonement, It applied to those who finally perish as well as to those who are the heirs of eternal life. To radically revise what the atonement is. Well, I don't expect you to be satisfied merely with this philosophical and logical argument. You want some Bible. So let me give you some Bible. The passages that teach a definite or a limited atonement are so numerous that we could never cover them all. Uh, So let me instead present you with five categories of texts, five categories of texts, and give you an example of each one. And let me say that a text I must leave out is uh, Romans 8, verses 28 through 39, which Murray deals with on pages 64 through 68 of his book. He actually gives it a very lengthy treatment. And if I were to deal with that text, it would probably be the only text I could deal with for sake of time. So... Murray, I'm not. I'm not going to do a better job than John Murray. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in that text, read Murray. Murray also deals with a few texts which I wish I I would be able to get to that seemingly teach a universal or unlimited view of the atonement. Verses like First John two two, he's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Uh, doesn't that doesn't that teach a general atonement? Well, I wish I could. Spend some time to really go into detail as to why it doesn't necessarily. But Murray does a good job at that as well. So let me commend that chapter in the book to you. But now let me give you five categories of texts and an example of each one. And the first is this. The first category are texts that speak of the definite and certain effects of the atonement. And for that, turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Matthew 1 and 21. The definite and certain effects of the atonement. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 1 and verse 21. It says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, in the New King James, will, in the King James, shall save his people from their sin." shall save them. Not attempt to save them. Not give it his best shot. Not put forth a good effort. Not begin the work of salvation and leave it for man to finish. He's going to do it all. He shall save. John Murray tells us, redemption does not mean redeemability. Mm -hmm. Christ did not place us in a redeemable position. He redeemed us. He redeemed us. Well, who did He redeem? So we see the definite effects, but notice He says, He shall save His people. Mm -hmm. Who does Christ surely and definitely save? His people. What does this mean? This means that when Jesus went to the cross, He did not give His life for an anonymous hypothetical group of people. That's That's right. Amen. He died personally, intimately, and specifically for those the Father had given Him from before the foundation of the world. Praise God. Amen. And the blessed practical truth of this is that Christian, you were on His mind when He went to the cross. Your name was written on His heart when He shed His blood for you. It was your life He died for. And as He hung on the cross... He was thinking about you and your life and your sin. But also, I do believe, thinking about your redemption and the fact that you would be with Him. Amen. The Bible tells us, who for the joy that was set before Him right. endured the cross. What was that joy? Yeah, our salvation. I think chiefly that, that joy was the acceptance and approbation of His Father. But that joy was also the reality that he would spend eternity with his people, that he loved. That's what propelled him to go to Calvary. So there are texts that speak of the definite and certain effects of the atonement. He shall save. Well, then there are texts that speak of Christ's death as a literal substitute. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 and verse 20. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement has never ceased to have its opponents. And it comes in various forms and various facets. Uh, But again, it's it's kind of like the nature of the atonement. If you understand the doctrine of substitution, you understand the extent. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 2 and in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Gave himself for me. For me is the language of substitution. He did not give himself in a general way. He did not uh, offer himself up in a general way. No, he gave himself specifically and intimately. And Paul has no problem claiming that Christ died for him in a personal and discriminant manner. Yeah, of course, Paul believed Jesus died for others. But Paul Paul would say, uh, could you imagine someone who holds to an unlimited view of the atonement? They hear Paul say, he loved me and gave himself for me. And then they would probably say, well, wait a minute, Paul, he gave himself for everybody. Don't be so stingy. And Paul would say, No, friend, he he died specifically and intimately for me. For me. Understanding the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement really settles the question of its extent. And we need to understand what we mean by substitution, okay? Say, if I said to Scott, if I said, Here, I bought a meal for you, and I placed some food on the table. That's not substitution, Because the decision is his. He could choose to eat it, or he could choose to not eat it. If he ate it, then I could say that my purchase was successful. Then I could say I bought a meal for him. But if he didn't eat it, then I bought the meal in vain. It did not accomplish its intended purpose. This is not what the Bible means when it says Christ died for us. So I want you to to understand that because there are those who would hold to a view of of unlimited atonement and they would say, oh yes, Christ died for us. But what they mean by that is not that He died as a literal substitute, but that He died for us in the sense that He now dies so that we have the opportunity to come and accept Him and what He did on the cross. But let's say, and now let's reverse the tables because this is what happened about an hour ago. Let's say we go out to a restaurant and... Scott tells me, we eat our meal, and he tells me, Brother, I paid the bill for you. Well, in this scenario, the decision is not mine at all. He made the choice to pay the bill. He didn't consult me for my approval. He didn't ask for my approval. He didn't need my approval. And I could go to the counter and wave some money around and tell the waiter I demand to pay the bill, but the waiter would just look at me and say... Uh, I'm sorry, sir, there's nothing left for you to pay. Scott has paid it for you. He's paid it. And the efficacy of his payment was not in any way dependent upon my acceptance. Whether I wanted him to or not, whether I asked him to or not, he did it. My meal was paid for. He did it. This is what the Bible means when it says that Jesus died for us. Right. He is our literal substitute who pays our debts, suffers in our place. So ask yourself, did Christ die in the place of, as a literal substitute, for those who right now are suffering in hell? No. In the same way, he died in the place of those in heaven. If he did, you have to ask the question, well then why are they suffering in hell for their sin if Christ Died for them. Right. Uh, because you could use the same illustration. If Scott paid my bill and I'm walking out the restaurant, and the waiter comes up to me and he says, Sir, here's your bill. We've got a problem here. Uh, there's a scam going on. Well, there's no scam in redemption. That's right. Was Christ's atonement not able to secure the salvation of all for whom it was made? Or is the biblical truth that the atonement was not made for all, but is fully efficacious to all for whom it was made. So there's texts that speak about Christ's death as our literal substitute. Thirdly, there's texts that speak of the union between Christ and His people in His death. Turn to Romans 6. Our brother Ed Foster did an excellent job with this text this past Lord's Day. Romans 6 and verses 4 and 5. Texts that speak of the union between Christ and His people in His death. Notice. Therefore, we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. With Him We also. With Him, we also. Notice from this text that Christ's people are positionally united to His death, burial, and resurrection. All those for whom Christ died are raised to walk in a newness of life. Mm -hmm. This means that if someone is not raised to walk in a newness of life, that is, they remain in their sins without repentance throughout the entirety of their life and unto the end, there's no reason to believe that they died with Christ. Everyone Christ took into the grave with Him, He brought out with Him. So we see here then this unity. This unity. Well then there's texts that speak of the unity of Christ's intercessory work. So the unity of of Christ with His people. But now there's a unity within Christ's intercessory work. Turn to Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Notice what the Bible says. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, and this is subsidiary to the main point, but this is an important phrase, those who come to God through him. So, Jesus doesn't save those who don't come to God through him. He's able to save those to the uttermost who come to God through Him since He he, he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, here's the interesting thing about Hebrews 7.25. No one, not even the Arminian, argues that the present intercession of Christ in heaven is unlimited. Everyone reads verse 25 and they understand This is a verse that is referring to Christ's present work praying for Christians in heaven. Well, let me submit to you, friend, that Christ's intercessory work at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now is entirely consistent with His intercessory work on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Amen. Jesus did not die for people on the cross that he does not now pray for in heaven. And he does not pray in heaven for people whom he did not die for on the cross. The group of people that Jesus prays for is one and the same with the group of people that he died for. Well, if only we had a clear verse in the Bible where Jesus tells us who he prays for. Wait a minute. We do. John 17 and verse 9 where Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. If only Jesus would have been a little bit more clear. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, it's not for lack of clarity. It's not for theological difficulty that limited atonement is rejected. It's because it rubs up against our pride. It rubs up against our carnal creaturely sense of fairness and love and equality. Jesus prays for those whom the Father has given Him, and it's for that same group that Jesus died. Well then lastly, while you're in John's Gospel, I've got two texts for you, both under the same category. The last category is this. Texts that explicitly speak of Christ's death as only intended for a specific group. Look at John 6. John 6 and verse 39. Jesus says, This is the will of Him who sent me. The will of the Father who sent me. That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day Jesus says plainly that he did not come to save all men without exception it's not why he came those he will raise up on the last day are those and only those whom the father has given him That's right, amen. Well, we must now ask the question did Jesus die for those who will not be raised with him on the last day did He shed His blood for those who will ultimately perish in their sins and receive eternal condemnation? We'll turn over to John 10 and verse 11 now. Perhaps no text in all of the Bible is more explicit than this text. John chapter 10 and verse 11. If we didn't have any of these other scriptural proofs and all we had was John 10 11, you would have a bulletproof argument for limited atonement. John 10 and verse 11. Notice, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Why are you the good shepherd, Jesus? And in giving the arguments, which he presents a few arguments here for why he is the good shepherd, he begins with the ace of spades. He begins with the very first, primo, top of the list argument. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd... Gives His life for the sheep. Gives His life for the sheep. He dies for the sheep. The sheep who will hear His voice and follow Him. The sheep whom He will lead. The sheep who will come to Him. At the cross, there was perfect equity. Jesus will receive everything He paid for. Every purchased sheep will come to Him. And not one will be lost. Well, I feel compelled to say a very brief word, and I've I've mentioned it, I've touched on it, but regarding the idea that somehow the doctrine of limited atonement makes God unjust, unfair, unloving, however you want to word it. Well, number one, as Paul so wonderfully lays out in Romans 9, Does not the potter have power over the clay? The clay does not get to say to the potter, Why have you made me this way? But let me give you a a very basic illustration. Because what we're really getting at with limited atonement is really just the logical conclusion of the doctrine of election. This illustration has been used time and time and time again. Very basic. If I were to go to an orphanage that had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of orphans. And I were to adopt one of those orphans. And I were to bring him to church on Sunday morning. And me and Abigail would have two children with us. No one, no one would say to us, we well, you know that's pretty, it's pretty cruel of you for not adopting all of them. And now we're talking about orphans who deserve, humanly speaking, deserve a good home. Who are probably there because of very tragic circumstances that are of no fault of their own. And no one would say, you are cruel because you didn't adopt all of them. No, what you would say to me is, wow, what a gracious, wonderful, selfless, kind thing to do. How much greater then? When we think of God looking out upon a mass of fallen humanity, searching the earth, finding none that does good, none that deserves salvation, none that deserves to be redeemed, none that deserves for the Son of God to become incarnate, live a sinless life, die for them on the cross, and reconcile them to God. No one deserved it. God, what... Justice would have been was for God to allow all of us to die and perish in hell. Amen. That's justice. Amen. That's, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yet, he chose some. He chose some. And woe unto us for us to look at that gracious act and charge God with injustice. Blasphemy. That's right. He chose he chose some. Yeah, people will say, Well, you Calvinists, you believe he only chose a handful. Yeah, but whose hand? I don't believe it's this little tiny frozen chosen remnant. Heaven says it's a it's a innumerable multitude. Uh, it, it, you can debate it. Theologians have argued Spurgeon believed that the number of the saved on the last day would outnumber. The lost. I'm not going to throw in my two cents on that, but I'm simply saying that we have 2,000 years of church history of men and women, of Christians, holding to a Calvinistic soteriology who, who believed that God had been mighty and plenteous in, His, in the outpouring of His grace. So that's the view of limited atonement, the definite atonement. Um, and I don't believe it's something subsidiary to our theology. It's really at the heart and soul of of who we are and what we believe. Uh, Not something that we beat our chests and puff ourselves up in pride over, uh, but it's at the heart and soul of what the atonement is. Mm -hmm. The question of the extent of the atonement determines what we view the atonement to be in its essence. So let us maintain, as Elder D.J. Ward so wonderfully said, the death of Christ was not an attempt, it was an accomplishment. Amen. And if it was an accomplishment, then there must have been an assignment. And had God not chosen some, heaven would be empty. That's right. But because of His choice, His gracious choice, His loving choice, we're here today. That is the accomplishment of redemption. The atonement is the necessary work of Christ that accomplished the full and final salvation of His people by removing their sins, imputing to them an acceptable righteousness, and restoring to them a relationship of peace with God. And now we have this huge question that's going to take us probably about another ten weeks to answer. And that question is this. How Does the death of Christ, this once-for-all historical accomplishment, come to be received and experienced in time by His people? Mm. Well, I'll close with that question. And hopefully that will encourage you to come back on Wednesday nights and hear the answer to it as we go through the application of redemption. So, uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank You. In Jesus' name as we consider these glorious truths of redemption accomplished and we see what You have done for sinners by Your grace, for Your glory. You are sovereign, we are not. It is Your choice and we bow to Your Lordship over all. And we thank You for Your grace in choosing us undeserved sinners. Far be it from us, Lord, for this doctrine to allow any pride whatsoever to even enter into our thinking. But Lord, may we rightly understand this doctrine and see that nothing crushes our pride more. We love You, we praise You, we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.